Hello, everybody, and welcome back to our Bible study series in the book of Job. If you have a Bible handy, please open it to the book of James, chapter 5. Now, tonight is a very special night during our stream, and for those listening to SoundCloud after, it's special because finally, after six long months, we get to hear from God himself. After all of Job's conversations with his friends, after Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, and Elihu have all said their piece alongside Job and to Job, and Job has made his case, now is the time for God to speak. He has shut every single mouth. And with God's words, we have... A message that still confuses people to this day. But we interpret scripture with scripture. In order to understand what our Lord is saying, we're going to have to look through some scripture today. First, starting with James chapter 5, to give us the point, the main message of the book of Job and after we read a chapter in Job, we will be going to another book as well to understand what our Lord is coming from. But hear the word of our Lord from James chapter 5 beginning in verse 7. Be patient therefore brothers until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, I am of the opinion that the entire message of the book of Job, per St. James, is that God is compassionate and merciful. And as a corollary to that, something we must also keep in mind, Job is the number one example of a sinful human being, saved by grace, being steadfast. So we have a purpose in this book, to show us God's mercy and compassion, and we also have an example to live by, Job the righteous, Job the enduring. With that, let us turn here to Job chapter 38, and we will begin to hear God's answer to Job. And as we turn there, again, commentators are oftentimes confused. There is much ink spilled over God's might, his power, his creation, and everything related to him being God before there is anything regarding a telos to, to those words, a reason for God telling these things to Job, 
who already knows it. Remember, Job has spoken of God's power. So have all of Job's friends. So has Elihu, the angry young man. They all know much of what God is going to say. If this was God informing him, well, what is God adding to the conversation? I would wager that it's not just God setting up a contrast between himself and Job. Our Lord is trying to remind Job of something he's missed regarding God's power. We must keep this in mind as we read this chapter. Please understand, God is smart, we are dumb. He is strong, we are weak. He is almighty, we are all nothing. He is God, we are not. And the I-thou distinction there is extremely important. But if we stop there in our religion... We are fools, and our religion isn't worth a big bucket of spit. Hear the word of our Lord from Job chapter 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors, when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment, and thick darkness its swaddling band, and prescribed limits for it, and set bars and doors, and said, Thus far shall you come, and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began? And caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal, and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked their light is withheld, and their uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea, or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. Where is the way to the dwelling of light? And where is the place of darkness, that you may take it to its territory, that you may discern the paths to its home? You know, for you were born then, and the number of your days is great. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow? Or have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? What is the way to the place where the light is distributed? Or where is the east wind, where is it scattered upon the earth? 
Who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain, and a way for the thunderbolt? To bring rain on a land where no man is, on the desert in which there is no man, to satisfy the waste and desolate land, and to make the ground sprout with glass. Has the rain a father? Or who has begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb did the ice come forth, and who has given birth to the frost of heaven? The waters become hard like stone, and the face of the deep is frozen. Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades, or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the Mazaroth in their season, or can you guide the bear with its children? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you establish their rule on the earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds, that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings, that they may go and say to you, Here we are? Who has put wisdom in the inward parts, or given understanding to the mind? Who can number the clouds by wisdom? Or who can tilt the water skins of the heavens when the dust runs into a mass and the clods stick fast together? Can you hunt the prey for the lion? Or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in their thicket? Who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God for help and wander about for lack of food? This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. You might note, as dramatic as I have been over the past 27 weeks, I didn't shout. There are many theologians who have claimed that God angrily explodes at Job in the whirlwind. A storm brews. God is clearly ticked off. God is so upset, they theorize, that he gives an angry, beleaguered lecture to Job as though God were tired of all of this stupidity, reaching up to his ears as he sat on his heavenly throne. I disagree, given the contents of what God says. Job chapter 38 begins with God answering Job out of the whirlwind. Job has requested an audience with God. Job has requested an opportunity to make his case. Job has also requested, two or three times in this book, I request, God, that you not allow the fear and terror of you to slay me as I hear you. Now, God is going to be speaking for four straight chapters. If he decided to shout and scream in such fashion as to scare Job straight, is that answering Job? Does our gracious and loving and merciful and compassionate God, as St. James points out, is that consistent with the message that St. James gives? Is that consistent with the character of God to look upon a harmed saint and say, Shut up, idiot. I'm big, you're small. I'm smart, you're dumb. I'm strong, you're weak. Be silent before me. I think that the actual contents of what God speaks of 
consistent with the nature of what he speaks of, we will get to that, tells us a different story. And I believe that when God answers Job, he is truly and surely answering him, not shouting him down. He says, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Again, some might say that's Elihu. Some would say that that is Job. Maybe we won't know exactly which one it is that God is referring to there. But he does address Job immediately and say, dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Obviously, this is the Almighty God. This is the omniscient creator of the entire universe that knows everything already. And Job knows that everything comes to God's mind. He already knows it. So this is kind of rhetorical for God to say it. In a roundabout way, it is God saying, You've missed something big, dear Job. And I'm going to start asking you some questions in the hopes that this reminds you of what you have been missing. Verse 4, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. God compares his role as the creator of the entire universe to that of something of an architect. A master builder, yes, but also one who measures, who draws it out, who takes that plumb line and sets things straight. For whom? We have to ask that question. Did God do this for vanity? He's asking Job. And we could see this as God saying, Listen, idiot, you don't know the first thing about cosmology. But we're not asking ourselves why God would bring this up. Terrifying Job is one thing, but... When we see that the sons of God shouted for joy at what God was doing, are, are we saying that the sons of God, the angels in heaven, were just so impressed at God being really good at making the earth? I doubt that that is consistent with the character of our loving God, who loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son to die for all of humanity. When we continue on in verse 8, Who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb, when I made thick clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band, and prescribed limits for it, and set bars and doors, and said, Thus far shall you come and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Why did God prescribe limits for the ocean? He didn't have to. He could have had a creation that was nothing but water, or had so much water covering the land that it was shin deep wherever you could stand. But God reminds Job that he didn't allow that to happen. Some may get tripped up with the poetic language going, is, is God condescending to Job with 
poetic language, we shouldn't get distracted by that. God is omnipotent. This is where some of the silliness of the flat earth versus round earth debates that have cropped up in the 21st century really shines through. Almost everybody I know that is a flat earther is, well, they're theists. They believe in an almighty and omnipotent God. So are many of the people arguing against them for a round earth. But you're already presupposing the existence of an omnipotent God who can make the universe however he chooses to, and with whatever language he wishes to. This isn't God necessarily speaking to Job as though Job, well, he doesn't have a science textbook here, so I'm not going to talk about a 4.6 billion year old universe or something for the old earth creationists listening. This is God telling it like it was, using language that he prefers to use regarding creating the universe. More importantly, though, why did he set limits for the ocean? Could it be that he did so because there would be no mankind if the ocean had no limits to it? Something to think about as we continue. Verse 12, Have you commanded the morning since your days began? and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it. It is changed like clay under the seal, and its features stand out like a garment from the wicked. Their light is withheld, and their uplifted arm is broken. Hearkening back to the conversation regarding God's justice, God brings up, you know that there's such a thing as nighttime and daytime. What happens when the sun comes up? The thieves, the scoundrels, the crooks out there are either caught by those who are still awake or just waking up and they get punished, or they slink back to their hideouts to be in darkness once more, sparing people. God had justice in mind when he created night and day. He's telling this to Job. Justice for whom? Well, Hopefully for humanity. I hope that becomes clear in the text. As we see these words, we're reminded that God is not just speaking of his own power. He's giving a purpose to it. And we're reminded of what St. James says. God is compassionate and merciful. We continue on in verse 16. Have you entered into the springs of the sea, or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you, or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. Job has brought up death. Job has brought up that he will trust in God even past death, because he knows of something like a resurrection. He knows something about seeing God face to face. And isn't this moment making us think just a little bit like God is saying, Job, you're not the only one that thinks about death. I know where its gates are. I know where the dead go. Remember, God created Sheol. He's created everything in every single location there could possibly be. 
He knows about our angst with death, but he is the only one that sees past that veil. We don't know what happens or the qualia of what happens when we die. We know we go to God or the wicked go to Hades. Sure. But God is the one who sees that. For what purpose? Well, thinking about this as Christians who understands that God has vowed to abolish death, isn't it comforting that he knows about it? This isn't a surprise to him. We continue in verse 19. Where is the way to the dwelling of light? And where is the place of darkness? That you may take it to its territory, and that you may discern the paths to its home. You know, for you were born then, and the number of your days is great. Sarcasm from the Lord, I love it. But he's saying, there is light and there is darkness. To Job, a man whose light is faded from his eyes. He can't see as well. God knows that Job needs light. And God says to Job, who provides that light for you? Continuing on once again, he says in verse 22, have you entered the storehouses of the snow or have you seen the storehouses of the hail which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war. What is the way to the place where the light is distributed, or where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? Writing in the ancient Near Eastern context, keep in mind, if there was snow on the ground, armies were not going to go out and fight. If hail was pelting both columns of soldiers getting ready for battle, there was going to be no battle. If the east wind came, the blight that destroyed just about everything and made everybody miserable, nobody's going to feel like fighting. Doesn't this sound like God saying, you know, there are times in which I make for peace, Job. You who feel like I am in conflict with you, don't you know that I can make peace as well? From verse 25, who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt, to bring rain on a land where no man is, on the desert in which there is no man, to satisfy the waste and desolate land, and to make the ground sprout with grass. You must have some farmers around you, right, Job? Now, even in places that are not farmlands, you rely on rains to grow these crops, to feed everybody. Has the rain a father? Who has begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb did the ice come forth, and who has given birth to the frost of heaven? The waters come hard like stone, and the face of the deep is frozen. Who created these seasons by which the land gets rest, Job? Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades, or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the Mazaroth, probably a reference to a constellation, in their season? Or can you guide the bear with its children? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you establish their rule in the earth? There's a point to the stars that we will bring up tonight. A very important point to the reason behind the existence of the stars and the constellations, the celestial bodies. Suffice it to say, they are not just there to exist. They're not just balls of gas. 
Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are? Who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? Ah, Job has called to God as the one who gives understanding, and so has Elihu. But we don't make it in this world without anything like wisdom. We don't survive without wisdom. Yet here we are, with wisdom, alive on account of God. Who can number the clouds by wisdom? Who can tilt the water skins of the heavens when the dust runs into a mass and the clods stick fast together? Who can end the famines, Job? Who can end the droughts? Can you hunt the prey for the lion? Are you feeding all of the animals? Or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in their thicket? Who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God for help and wander about for lack of food? Someone's feeding them, Job, and that someone is me. That's what our Lord says. And in all reality, that's what he's getting at. If you haven't noticed it, that is every single thing our Lord is bringing up speaking of his love and care for his creation, specifically humanity. Oh yes, the animals get brought up. Yes, the crops get brought up. But we need to understand something. And as we turn to Genesis chapter 1, we must understand, and this will be brief, I understand I'm going a little long here, all of creation is an act of God's grace for you. All of it. From the breath that you take, the air that God created, it was created for you. The food that you eat, the ground on which you sit or stand is created for you. All of creation was done as an act of grace for humanity. This is one of the reasons why Luther and Augustine and many others see the Apostles' Creed, even the first article, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, as a gospel matter. Because God created this entire universe for us freely by his grace. Now from Genesis 1-1 we hear, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Why? The earth was without form and void, the darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. Why? God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. Why? If there's nobody there to see light, because God doesn't need to see light. He can see anything with or without light. Why would he create light unless it was for someone? God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. Why? There's no need to separate out waters if he's just creating for creating's sake. God could have started a Minecraft account or something if he really wanted to just create a pretty sculpture. 
but instead he creates with somebody something in mind that's not going to stick around if there is no separation in these waters. And God said, let the water under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. Why? And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. It is time to build something upon this land. And something needs to be on that land that cannot be on that land if there is no land. Hmm. Well, we continue on. God said, let the earth sprout vegetation. Plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. Don't we find it just a little silly if we don't understand this as an act of grace? That God would just create plants that bear food with nothing to eat them. You just have carrot plants just sitting there in the dirt. You have apple trees with apples there, nothing to eat them. An edible plant with nothing on it. Nothing plucking the apple. Nothing taking the banana from the banana bunch. Somebody is supposed to be here. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. Let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. Let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens and give light upon the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. God doesn't need stars, sun, and moon to tell days from one another, to give seasons, to create a calendar of sorts. He doesn't need that. Not one bit. He's God. Somebody that isn't there yet will need that to tell time. Somebody that he wants this universe to be oriented toward. God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind and God saw that it was good. Have we noticed that these animals, he mentions livestock specifically, animals with use, sheep, cows, sheep for their wool, cows for their milk, horses and oxen for their ability to pull and to ride and to move, 
There are birds there that can lay eggs and provide feathers for pillows. There's use to these animals. Livestock. And that's the term for them. He does create every creature. All the foxes, the wolves, the bugs, everything. But if we've noticed the pattern, it is for something. It is for someone. And we move to verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Our Reformed friends see that word dominion and immediately get very giddy because they love the thought of ruling over this. They forget that this is essentially God handing the title deed to the entire world to mankind. Giving it as a gift to mankind. All of creation was made for you, beloved. And he says, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and over every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life. I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, mehol, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. And of course, God rests on the seventh day. Probably, if anything, to enjoy what he had just created. To see it. He loved mankind before the universe was created before God ever said, let there be light. He loved you. Before God said, let there be light, he knew your name. He knew how many days you would have on earth. He knew your needs. And when he begins to speak to Job about these matters, giving him a little bit more of an inside track to creation, what is he saying to Job other than, you're looking at my justice and you're wondering whether I'm being fair to you right now. Have you forgotten how much I love you? Have you forgotten how much I love all of creation, but especially mankind, the pinnacle of all creation? Have you forgotten this, dear Job? The two words that make all of Lutheran theology understandable are for and you. When we read the Apostles' Creed, we read, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And that sentence is completely worthless if we do not tack on those last two words, for you. And I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, 
who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, from where he shall come to judge the living and the dead. This statement is completely meaningless unless it is for you. If Jesus did not die for you, why even be a Christian? It doesn't apply to you. It doesn't matter to you. But Christ died for you. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, or the Holy Catholic Church for our Catholic friends, communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the dead, and the life everlasting. Amen. If none of this applies to us, if God does not love us enough to forgive us our sins, to give us a church to be a part of, to bring us to holy communion, and to give us everlasting life, that statement is completely meaningless. It has to be for you. And in this moment, as God begins to speak, it's one of those blink-and-you-miss-it things implied in every single word he gives to Job. For you. Job, I am for you. You don't need an explanation about a cosmic wager between me and the devil. You do not need to necessarily hear right now that I was trying to demonstrate your faith to an enemy of mine, what you need to understand is that I am for you. And this makes sense to us. If in this moment, as Job is at his lowest, mentally at his most strained, he has endured pains beyond what most of us can possibly comprehend, in this moment, is Job going to accept that he was part of a cosmic bet? Is Job going to accept, well, listen, God sanctifies us through pain, and the death of your children was part of that? Not one bit. It's of no use to hear that. It is nothing to him, because it would lack those two words for you. And as God begins to speak, and as we remember St. James saying that the whole point of this book is God's compassion and mercy, his love toward us, we must remember for you. And every word God speaks to Job is going to have that in mind. That Job doesn't understand it. And God uses a bit of humor there to say, where were you when I laid all this out, dear friend Job? But ultimately, everything he says is exactly what Job needed to hear for you. And we will get into more of that next week as God begins to bring up some things that us moderns don't quite understand. Things like Leviathan and the Behemoth that we will get into more detail on that. There are incredibly important things that many people are going to miss if we don't bring them up. But until then, our Lord bless you and keep you because he is for you. Amen and amen. Amen.